0: You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast.
1: Lesson 1 Basic Hip Welcome to the jazz session I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 620 for July 5th 2023 on this episode bassist Mark Dresser. Members of the Jazz Session also get This I Dig of You, the Patreon bonus show on which I ask the guest to talk about something non-musical that is bringing them joy. Mark talks about walking on Torrey Pines Beach. You can hear the bonus episode by becoming a member for five bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. You'll also get early access to every episode of the show, occasional behind-the-scenes info, other bonus episodes. Plus, for every episode, I choose one Patreon supporter to name as the sponsor of that episode. This time around... You can thank Mike Watson. Thanks, Mike. Mark Dresser's new solo bass album is called Tines of Change. Here's the opening track. Mark Dresser, welcome to The Jazz
0: Session. Thanks, Jason. Pleasure to be here.
1: We're here to talk about a new album called Tines for Change on Pyroclastic Records, which is an album of solo bass performances, not not your first one of those by a long shot, but kind of a further development uh, along this evolutionary path of finding new sounds in the bass. And Maybe we could just start there and talk a little bit about that path, this kind of multi-decade uh, experimentation with what other sounds can be not only heard, but recorded and amplified on a bass.
0: Well, I mean, the, this started, you know, as a teenager, and i find myself goofing around and finding stuff that was not, you know, uh, that was interesting to me. And uh, and I would try to figure out how to how to utilize it. But most of the stuff, particularly bitones, are so soft. Bitones are the... The, the length of string from the nut of the bass to the finger, not from the finger to the bridge. So this is usually the inaudible part. So I started becoming uh, interested in that once I heard, was able to correlate uh, the interval I was getting with the foxy lady interval. And uh, then it's so, you know, it was about sound, but it was really about expressive music making. So it's like it's not just like about sound it's about it's about emotion and it's about trying to find context for sound and what it means, you know, and where and where it fits. There's some there are sounds that I've stumbled upon, happy accidents and other things that, you know uh, and, and, and in those cases, sometimes it takes decades till I find a real good use for it. And like the the something that I've been able to do for since nineteen eighty, we play subharmonics, which is pitches that sound below the oct, be- an octave below the pitch I'm playing. It sounds like an a, an acoustic impossibility because the the string is vibrate it has a certain length and it vibrates at that. But if you put a kind of special kind of pressure to it, it uh, it will vibrate at frequencies lower than its pitch. So. Again, certain things are, are are more controllable, and other things are hard to control. But those and the irony of all this is that you know, when you learn an instrument, we search. You know, you're always trying to control how to play in time and tune, how to find you know, f- place it right what you right where you want it. But in fact, the thing that's the most thrilling is when you find those things that are not that are out of your control, that are you know um dynamic and uh and there are lots of things that I found on the bass that are like that that you know you that are exciting because they're wild. And so it's really about, you know, it's about sound of course, but it's about, you know, it's about expression really.
1: How do you factor something dynamic and uncontrollable into a performance? Do you, do you just have to not consider it? And if it happens, it happens?
0: Well, it, it, it's like not dynamic and uncontrollable. Well, there, there, there are levels of this. Like, I mean, I most times I, when I play like a solo concert, even though I did a concert release, con- a CD release concert the other night, I did not, even though I knew... Every piece on the CD, they were as I uh, they were edited improvisations. And if I try to recreate that, that's never going to really allow me to surf this moment. And so, like you know, part of expertise or experience is knowing how to make transitions, how to curve, how to how to you know tie things in, how to find cadences. All those things that make music feel like music, and so that those are things that you know I I can improvise and 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 over the years I've gained ex, you know um, proficiency at that and the, the ability to do that, and uh, yeah, of course I know I know my vocabulary, sure, but I, I don't know always how it's going to behave, and then I just have to go with it. Sometimes there's certain things that are do that are sounds that I make that are prone or that are affected by humidity, heat. And I can't control how that's going to, I don't know till I get there how that's going to play out. And then you just, you know, the, there's, as Muhal uh, Richard was said, there's only one rule for an improviser, which is make it work. <laughs> you know, and that's, that, that you know, that's never, it's completely true. It's so interesting because you're
1: talking about playing solo. The w- I mean, I know you do these things in group context too, but you're talking. You were a- because of this, you're able to talk about playing by yourself the same way you might talk about playing with another person whose actions you also can't necessarily predict or control.
0: Yeah, I mean, clearly, I have a I have more control when I'm playing solo because I you know I do know what the areas that i know you know i do know i'm not you know i'm i am playing something an instrument i know intimately well but it's you know so it's it's yes it's similar
1: So just to talk about the the modifications to these bases because I I know from um, what I've read that you you know you first discovered these sounds certainly some of these sounds but the challenge was that when other people were playing they were inaudible and so right. one of the initial experiments was how do I make the things I can hear audible when other people are playing as well right. so can you talk about what's happened to get you to this place that we're hearing on times of change and I know it's well, been a long so
0: past. In the early 80s, I was just recording these, you know, these bitone, these really soft, but expressive, interesting polyphonic qualities of the string. I was recording them with microphones, which was terrific, except you can't, once you play with someone else, everything that you find, uh, many things that I found interesting were inaudible. So then it was, I met a guitarist, Tom North, who had pickups. He, uh, mounted on his headstock, exactly what I want to do. And I asked him about. He's supposed to steal the idea. So I, uh, I said okay. And so I f- hired someone to build me something that would work on the base. And then a few years later, I upgraded, and uh, and uh, another buddy built me so, uh, uh, built me a new contraption uh, with pickups. Made by Bill Bartolini, the great pickup maker, on recommendation of uh, Fred Frith, who I became a friend and a colleague, and uh, and then uh, in 2000, uh, I believe I was playing a concert in Denver, and I didn't have, and I couldn't bring my own bass, and I brought my the strap-on pickup, which I called the Giffus. And I was telling Kent, man, I really one day would love to have these, these pickups built into a fingerboard, because this is just, it changes the weight of the instrument. This thing was getting, you know, unstable mechanically, not so, not electromagnetically, but and so he said, oh, that's an interesting idea. Let me work on it. And so he built for me over nine months, uh, a set of pickups that I had put in to my, uh, my three quarter Hungarian base. And he nailed it. He nailed it on on the first try. He's so precise, and so and then I eventually had him build, put him in every bass I play. This you know, is Ken
1: McLegan, right?
0: Ken McLegan from Denver, Colorado, who's a wonderful bass player as well as a, a mechanical engineer, and uh, and has an incredible ear and uh, and is a meticulously as a meticulous craftsman. Uh, he can just, you know, he's just, I, I can't say enough about Kent. And he was building bases, and he it was new, and he was not working for, he wasn't a luthier. He was just like, oh, this is, I like the way this base I. what if I made my own? And his model was, what if I made a base that was uh, made out of sustainable materials that was inexpensive that anyone could own one, which is completely a different paradigm than Fine luthery, which is how much can I make an instrument to command the greatest dollar? <laughs> so, finally, in 2014, I asked him to build me an instrument, which he did, and then I and of course that included the internal pickups, which now we had in two different places, and we had refined the placement of the second location, and then I asked him also to build me uh, a an an idea I had for an instrument, which were a set of metal tines that were kind of crossed between, somewhere across between an imbira, an African imbira, maybe a water phone, those metal rods on a water phone. And yeah. then what w- really was my initial inspiration was this inspira- this instrument made by composer Robert Erickson, which were stroked rods, which were aluminum rods. They were outstanding percussion instruments that you would play with rods and uh, um, gloves. And they had this uncanny sound that I, I just never forgot and again kind of like a foam without the water you know and you would bow those and so it was sort of like and he, he said okay let me give it a go so in 2015 i got the first one the first functional set of tines since 2015 i think we're on our 11th iteration of the tines so he's made me different metals different mounting systems different initial concepts, different tunings. And now, now everything's tunable. And uh, so it's really, it's really, you know, and again, it's like only I'm asking for this. <laughs> you know, it's just like, this is like a, you know, this is, this is a labor of love. That's all, oh, that's all you can say about it. And the thing about the times that are so interesting and I didn't know when we got into it is that they they have a very different overtone series. They're not like a string. String works on you know um, you know uh, symmetrical replications of itself, divisions, multiple mul- multiplicities of itself. So a string you re- it has a frequency, and then they, they, double that you get the octave, three times of that, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The tines are different because they only. Locate at one place. And so it's very kind of um, weird. It's consistent, but weirdly just, you know, it's, 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 it's a little out of tune between the fundamental and the first harmonic. And then the second one is symmetrical, but it's the range. They're just wildly, they're just wild in their range. And timbre, and they, and it was just fun to see how to make everything talk to one another. I think it's inherently human to try to make sense out of your worlds, and so here I had an instrument that I this ad- adaptation or augmentation to the bass that I'm trying to integrate in the way I play. So you know, you start playing one thing at a time, then you try to figure out how to blend it with this, and. You start hearing differently, and you real, and then the instrument starts resonating differently because you have this new vibrating mass on it. So it's like sets up a whole set, set of new um, dimensions. And so the record, well, it wasn't the first record I did with it. I did in 2016, I did a first recording called Modicana, which was an LP only that I did on um, No Business Records. And I did it on LP because I knew I wasn't ready to. In fact, it was a live concert that the record that I did in um, Sweden at the Umea Jazz Festival. And the label contacted me; they got a hold of the board thing, board recording, and contacted me. Said, "Can we release this?" And I, you know, I was flattered, of course, but I knew this wasn't ready to do a dedicated record. You know, these were the first pieces I composed for it. So I just did a limited edition LP, and so because I knew that I wanted to do a book and I wanted to do a definitive uh, recording of, with the Tines as as a central component of it, and that's what this CD is. And you know, and as uh it was rec- the initial tracks were recorded in two thousand nineteen, and then the pandemic hit, and the engineer uh, Alexandria Smith, the brilliant engineer. Who was a former uh, student at UCSD? Got a job teaching at Loyola University in New Orleans, and um, and you know this. And then after the you know then the pandemic, nothing much happened. I just kept working, and then we said twenty summer twenty one. We started mixing and editing, editing and mixing the CD and mastering it. So then we had forty good minutes, and I sent it to two labels, and they both, two people immediately said, "We want to put this out." And I said, "That's great, but I want to wait. I want to. I'm getting a, Kent's going to make me a five string, which was unexpected. I didn't expect that I was going to order a five string, but he had. A, he made this bass that was so sonically compelling. I said, "I got to get one of these." And uh, th- and he's so reasonable uh, that that uh, I could I do it. And I had the bass last August, and then we recorded this thing. I, I can't remember if it was was October or December and then we mixed and mastered. We had four new tracks and then by the by the end of the year we submitted it to uh, pyroclastic and now it's out. <laughs>
1: you can support what I do and help keep the archives freely available for everyone by becoming a member for $5 a month. You'll get a bonus episode with every regular episode, plus early access to every show, additional bonus material, other behind the scenes updates. You can become a member today at the join. Thank you very much. I write press releases and artist bios and liner notes for musicians. I've done that for many of the folks you've heard on this show and others too. I also help work on Wikipedia pages and do social media. Management. You can see samples of my work at cranerites.com. I would love to write for you. So check out the samples and get in touch. Now back to the episode. So I want to ask a, uh, several yeah. questions based on that. Um, one is, I think we can all picture in our minds an upright bass. And since yeah. this is an audio uh, medium and no one can see anything, um, I just want to kind of paint a little bit of a picture. So upright bass, we've got the big body, you're standing behind it, left hand on the fingerboard, and the the stuff that's been done to the fingerboard with the pickups, we can't see because it's under the fingerboard. So right, it, it looks just normal. Yeah. But then your right hand, which would either be uh, – Plucking the strings or holding a bow. Somewhere down there are these tines. So if we're imagining this bass in our heads, where are we seeing the tines, okay, and how so, are you
0: playing them? So the bridge is the point where the string goes over and then connects to the tailpiece, which holds it. That's where the pitch stops at the bridge. Okay. Of the string, the backside of the string does has a, have a sound, but that's not normally a playable part. The tines fit on a secondary bridge that fit on the back side of the bridge. So it doesn't interrupt with the normal strings and the tines that protrude between the silk ends of the string. So because the bridge is a high point, they slope down to the tailpiece. The tines poke through that. So okay. I'm able to play it there. And so.
1: and you can either pluck them or bow them depending on how you're
0: playing yes exactly okay much much more comfortable to bow them than to pluck them but yeah just because of the resistance the fact that they're no no no, just because the distance from my you have to bend over to to gotcha yeah okay i do you know but and then
1: um you mentioned uh alexandria smith um the engineer and it it feels to me like the engineering of this record was a really key piece of yeah. it, given the very nature of what we're talking about uh, can you well, just say a little more about that about well i mean
0: you know t- if the idea was to i mean first of all the the, the these areas are kind of are inherently not loud they're, and they're and so the idea was how do you blow up how do you make this this vocabulary as vivid and integrated as possible, and she had just a really, uh, you know, in-your-face aesthetic. How, you know how to make this really super present. And I, you know, when I recorded uh, Unveil, that was my uh, two thousand six, I think, solo CD. That Roz Macy, and I, who's a wonderful uh, musician and uh, engineer of on his own did that kind of recording. And that's what I, I really wanted that super presence and she got it, you know, really got it. And so like we, you know, we were, yeah. So she, she, and then, you know, together we edited the, the, the music.
1: And so to talk about the editing process, which is the third piece of that, that I wanted to get into, um, is this kind of a, like a studio as instrument thing, or is it just going through and finding the sections that you want to pull out or, uh how well, much editing it, is
0: editing there's no overdubbing okay so basically we would take imp- improvisation we would take cuts you know lo- you know maybe a, a 9 12 minute thing and then try to excise stuff that may have be that may seem redundant or or things that were more dynamic and on the cut and you know make it more compact you know so that it would be yeah that would be you know uh as concise as possible
1: Did you always hear the same piece? I mean, did she hear some things that you thought, "Oh, I wouldn't have considered that," and vice versa?
0: There were a couple tracks that she took the reins on the editing, but most, all the others, I I did, and then I gave them. I would do it in Logic, and then I, you know, I do like a. I'm not a artful editor, but I would make kind of dummy tracks because I have, you know, a, a, I'm able to do that and be able to. You know, show these precise things where I heard where these things where the transitions were and and uh, what would juxtapose well against another thing. So yeah, I mean it's it's it is composition in the sense, but it's a different scale. I mean, I used to do the same thing, but I would I would um, you know transcribe things and then try to recreate them. But that you know, and that's how I did this piece in two thousand. A 1983 uh, trenchant, I worked with an, another a, an engineer kind of collaborator named Lamont Wolfe, and we spent six months on one piece, a nine-minute piece, spending, you know, eight hours a day, twice a week, really like, you know, you know, curating, you know, all these areas. So I, this is a process I've been involved in a long time. Back then, when I was doing these tap these bitone tapping techniques, I really I, I, I would I didn't understand how how it really worked. I I, I you know I, I noticed that I would get these pitches, but I didn't I didn't know how to name them. I didn't know what I was getting. So I would find these things and then we would edit and find things and then I would transcribe it and then teach myself how to play it again to recreate it. So that was a much more laborious process and um, and a valuable one. But now I have a much I you know now I really have a greater understanding after having done this now for forty years more, you know things I think even things I didn't understand as as uh, late as two thousand seventeen how to even think about multiple pitch segments on one string how to organize it in my brain in terms of what the resultant pitch was? What was the fundamental? What was the you know anyhow that I I'm getting way into the weeds. of uh, <laughs> Base <faster> nerdi- <laughs> nerdiness, but uh,
1: <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask you, um, uh, I guess, a more, a more philosophically minded question, which is in the the written materials that accompanied this record, uh, three yeah. names came up, uh, and those were Charles Mingus. Ah, uh, Jimi Hendrix, and one that I hadn't heard before, which is uh, Bertram Tureski or Bert Turesky, yeah. and yeah. I wondered if you could just say something about each of them and and maybe whatever sort of uh, permission or inspiration you you took from their playing to get to what we're hearing
0: now. Well, I mean, no doubt the impact of. Uh, I mean, I was a teenager and heard Hendrix live, you know, back back in the day. I you know so like and then I you know, and I, I heard the connection between feedback and playing ponticello. And I realized I can do that on the bass. What is ponticello? It's it's by playing by the bridge where you're not getting the fundamental frequency, you're getting the overtones. Okay. That was something that he, you know, he would, you know, he would get the guitar really close to the amp to get those high frequencies that were again, wild and kind of Grossly controllable. And that was the quality that I w- was referring to earlier. And I heard that. I said, wow, this is a green light. And then Mingus, you know, the expressivity of his playing and the power and the, you know, and the, you know, just there was something liberating about his music making and the guts and, uh, the pers- power of his person- musical personality, and the great compositions, and the and all the stuff he you know his rhythmic you know the metric the rhythmic propulsion of his playing, the dynamicism of his playing. It wasn't the bass player playing a, a, a groovy pulse. It was like dynamic changing the music, and that really spoke to me. I said that you know the, I want to do that. I want the whatever that is. I want to be a part of that. And then uh, Bert Turetsky, similarly, I heard him when I was 16 or 17 in Los Angeles perform, and I had been warned about him, like, don't do that, <laughs> you know, by my very wonderful but conservative teacher. And uh, I heard him play, and it was the most colorful, rich, dynamic bass sound I had ever heard. I'd never heard anything like it.
1: In what and context? I don't know anything about him. He was, him. What he kind was of music? playing...
0: He was, well, he, he was, uh, he's still alive, he was a, a bass soloist, and he would probably con- had more new music commissioned to him, uh, commissioned for him, than any uh, musician in the history of the instrument. So he was a champion of contemporary music, particularly contemporary solo bass music. And he made a career out of that, and, you know, commissioning pieces from noted composers as well as students. And so... I heard that and I spoke to him afterwards. He said, Well, kid, where are you going to school? And I, where are you going to college? I said, I'm going to go to Indiana University. I guess I probably was, I guess, 17. I knew I had applied, had been accepted. And he, you know, he looked at me and he says, You're not going to last there. You know, <laughs> when you're ready, get which because it was a very conservative but wonderful place. But it was, you know, after three weeks there, I gave I I I gave him a call and he sent me an application and and I moved there the next year and started studying. Where was knowledge. he This is at UC San Diego, where I teach. So, but my path was not linear. I dropped in and out. of It took me 11 years to finish a bachelor's degree. i drop out. I, got a, I was playing with the Black Music Infinity, that band led by Stanley Crouch with Bobby Bradford and Arthur Blythe. And the young'uns were uh, David Murray, D- James Newton, and myself. And, uh, you know, we did that. For several years until everyone started to move to New York, Arthur first, then David, and then I took a three-week vacation to New York that uh, lasted two years. And I, you know, th- threw a brick through my back window of my VW van, and and we ended up parking it in New Haven. And after the three weeks were over, I said, "Well, why are we going back to San Diego?" So uh, I moved to New Haven, and that's where I met my lifelong friends. A composer Anthony Davis, who I still collaborate and play his music to this day. And as well as Jerry Hemingway, the great drummer. And, uh, uh, and I met for Onoch there and Robert Dick and, you know, uh, uh, Wadada Leo Smith. I was playing concerts. Anyhow, it was, it was life-changing and completely not planned. It was just, you know, I was just happened to be at the right place at the right time and had the, Uh, you know, and just went with how I felt about where I wanted to be. So, and, you know, I quit the symphony and I I had, prior to that, I had a, uh, uh, I was a contracted member of the San Diego symphony and then they had gone on strike. So I was collecting unemployment. And then we did this, this trip. And, uh, and then I just never came back for two years. (laughs)
1: And, and as you mentioned, as you, you mentioned, now, you teach, now at teach at UC San UCS. Diego. Yeah. How do you, how do you pass on that same uh, you know quest for freedom to students who may need it, may need that permission, or need that?
0: Well, I mean, f- you know, for the for the, uh, the the graduate students who come to UCSD, it's a, it's a it has a uh, a reputation of being a, a center for contemporary music. It's a research university, so the graduate students know what they're they know where they're applying to you it's not like a state school where people just go I mean that may be true for undergraduate undergraduate degrees I teach them how to play the instrument and you know the fundamentals and uh, we go through stuff that I went through as well stuff that I'm working on myself uh, that I've I'm writing for a book and then the graduate students I make everyone everyone has to compose everyone has to so I I put everyone in a in a in a creator position and then ultimately for the graduate students i'm trying to help facilitate them being the kind of musician they want if i see technical issues that are a problem we address them but generally they come in pretty much knowing how to play you know and then then we then we just you know uh, i become you know a, a coach and a advocate for them to do their music and for everyone, it's different.
1: That's Mark Dresser. The new album, which is on uh, Pyroclastic Records, is called Times of Change. Such a pleasure to talk to you about this Thank album. Thank you. Thanks
0: so much, Mark. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks to my guest for this episode, Mark Dresser. Thanks especially because for the second time in 20 years, I accidentally erased the entire interview and we had to do it again. And Mark was really, really nice about that. <laughs> Thanks also to the members who support this show and to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music and Sarah Walter for the logo. You can message me for more info about Sarah, Jason at session.com Chuck Ingersoll is the voice of the intro. You can hire him at hearchucknow.com. Follow the show on Twitter. at Jazz Sesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, and on Instagram and TikTok at The Jazz Session. Take a second, if you would, to rate and review The Jazz Session on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get listened to it. It really helps me improve my ability to reach new folks. If you'd like to keep up to date with my podcast, my poetry, and more, you can subscribe to my newsletter. Go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. I have a second podcast called A Brief Chat, which you can find at abriefchat.com. If you dig what you just heard, become a member for five bucks a month at The Jazz Session dot com slash join and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the jazz session everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.